welcome to the third episode of Let's Talk Club Management. I'm Kyle Jennings, the Manager for Communications and Student Development here at CMAA, and I'm joined by my colleague, Melissa Lowe. Melissa Lowe, the Senior Director of Communications and Advocacy, <laughs> and we're so glad to be back with you guys again. Yes. Um, it's now official. We are now the Club Management, Management. Association of America, so as of July 1st, um, our name officially changed. It's the first name change in the history of the organization, so that's pretty cool since 1927. Right, and now we all have to learn how to answer the phones differently. Exactly. So bear <laughs> with us as we go through this transition, um, you know, getting, our, getting everything updated. We're having a bit of an identity crisis. We promise we'll figure it out. We're getting there. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's so Slowly close. but surely. But if you do notice... If you're browsing around on the website or you get something and you notice that it still says club managers and it should say club management, give us a heads up because maybe we missed it or maybe we have an explanation. But anytime you see something like that, just go ahead and let us know because we're still trying to find it all. (laughs) So our episode this month is actually a continuation of what we talked about last month. Um, We did an addition on governance, and we actually had so much great information to share with you that we wanted to, we didn't want you to miss out on anything, so we are following up Governance Confidential Part 1 with Governance Confidential Part 2. And today, we're excited to have two guests um, to talk more on that subject. Uh, Our first guest is a retired member. Henry Waddington, also known as Harry, um, who offers great real-life perspectives and gives some really cool uh, real-life examples of some of the governance issues that he faced um, during his time as a club manager. And then we'll talk with Robert Sorecci, who shares how managers can um, be more effective in the boardroom and in their board relations, which I think in our conversations with Harry and Mac, that came up over and over and over again was this sort of interpersonal relationships that are so important in um, having a successful uh, board relationship. Um, So let's get started. Um, I'm excited to introduce our next guest. Um, Continuing on the topic of governance and the Governance Confidential, we're talking to experienced club managers about this challenge. Um, So up next with us is Harry Waddington, CCMCCE. He's a retired CMA member whose career in the industry started more than 50 years ago. His experience includes the leadership of the Officers Club at the Charleston Naval Base in Charleston, South Carolina, Sedgefield Country Club in Greensboro, North Carolina, Quail Hollow Country Club in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the Piedmont Driving Club in Atlanta, Georgia. Back in 1964, his club was honored by the United States Navy as the best officers club. Beyond clubs, he was the owner and partner in four restaurants in Charleston, South Carolina. He is also a past national CMAA board member and has served on a number of CMAA national committees. Very excited to have him with us today. I'm I'm from Charleston originally and went to school down there and it's always good to talk to somebody down in the low country. <laughs> what years were you in Charleston? Uh, so we moved there when I was four, so that would have been the early 80s, and I graduated from the College of Charleston in 2000, so I've been up here the since then. The restaurant we had was the Colony House and the Wine Cellar. Oh, okay. I know exactly where that is. Yeah, it's now the Harbor Club. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Oh. I used to work right around the corner. I worked um, at the Exchange Building in college oh, yeah. as a tu- as a yeah. tour guide. So <laughs> I know exactly where that is. 
Yep. Broad Street. Yep, yep. Oh, wow. I've never been to Charleston. I was going to say, so poor I'll Kyle has never been there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are recording, and I think we're ready to go. So I will let Melissa kick it off with our first question. Sure. So we're, we're really focusing on governance and, as you know, um, kind of talking to experienced club management professionals who've, who've been there, done that. And uh, in, your, in your perspective, what do you think about governance that makes it so difficult, makes it so challenging for club management professionals? Well, I think the, the, the first, the primary thing is board members who are, refuse to accept facts. Uh, <laughs> They have their own agendas, and uh, facts seem to get in the way with those agendas. That seems pretty in line with um, another interview that we did earlier last week um, with Mac Niven, and he said something similar. Board members who have agendas are typically much more difficult to deal with because they come in to their term with a, their own idea of how things should go. So I can imagine that that would be a pretty significant challenge for a manager who is trying to do their best to better the club as a whole and not just serve one individual. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I'll give you an example. In 1984, when I arrived at the driving club, they had no Jewish members, <clears throat> no black members, and no female members. Um, any one of you want to take a guess at the which was the most difficult one to solve? Let's see. I was going to say, we, I think we could flip a coin, and that's going to be any well, of those. I'll answer, I'll answer it for you. Okay. Female. Yeah, that's yep. not shocking. Yep. <laughs> and the way I solved that problem was I had one board member who was bent in hell. He wasn't going to allow female members in. I took him to the uh, lunch and dining room. The tables were occupied 90% by women. And I asked them the question, I said, how would that picture you're seeing change if we had them as members? He changed his vote. <laughs> Smart. Smart move. <clears throat> and I, I think the best way to handle board members who have these agendas is to get with another board member and open his eyes or her eyes. Yeah, that seems, again, on track a lot with what Max said as well. It's this idea of um, building that, like, building almost a personal relationship with those other board members um, and sort of giving them the opportunity to take some ownership in the issue and, and then making it almost like a grassroots effort. Once you get exactly. someone else on board, then it's a little bit easier to turn the tide. As long as it's not your idea. Right, right. <laughs> it has to be their idea. <laughs> Yeah, if it's your idea, it's not going to succeed. <laughs> Definitely. So that actually covers one of our other questions, being um, what have you found to be the most challenging types of club directors? Are there any other um, uh, types of people that are a challenge to deal with beyond those that come in with their own personal agenda? Well, sometimes board members with agendas, uh, they don't walk in with the agenda tattooed to their chest. They, they, they're kind of secretive about it. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, it usually comes out. I had a president, uh, this goes back a ways, um, 
he was bound and determined that he was going to keep the club the way it was when he was a kid. I mean, he'd been a member of that club since he was 21. Oh, wow. Um, he decided that he wanted to increase the initiation fee by a substantial amount, almost double what it was. And in those days, we're talking uh, small amounts compared to what initiation fees are today. We had a waiting list at the time of over 100 people, uh, gentlemen. Uh, unfortunately, at that time, there were no ladies on the waiting list. But the, the danger with increasing the initiation fee was our waiting list diminished to less than a third of what it had been. Yeah. He didn't understand the ramifications of what he wanted to do. His, his determination to raise the initiation fee was based on one thing. He wanted to keep the quote-unquote riffraff out of the club. <laughs> Ted Turner was one of those riffraff. Oh. <laughs> <Wow>. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah. think that, that actually, to me, that kind of shows some of the um, short-sightedness of some of those agendas. It feels like when someone comes in with, a, I guess we could call it a prejudice, whatever it might be, um, it's often true that those feelings or those positions don't see past the end of their own nose. Um, That's right. And they don't see, like you said, the, the whole impact that that could have on the club, the community, etc. So I could imagine that, again, dealing with that could be pretty difficult, especially if when those um, directors come in and it's not immediately obvious. You kind of got to work work the, the crowd a little bit to, to figure out what kind of personalities you're going to be dealing with. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> it's very, it's almost very political. <laughs> well, in those days it was extremely political. I can imagine. Um, so along those lines, and, and we know that, you know, some of these people are difficult to deal with, um, what suggestions do you have for sort of managing the personalities that come with a board and managing then the board dynamics? That's a difficult question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You don't ask easy ones. I know. <laughs> uh, again, I think the best way to handle a difficult personality is to work with another member of the board. Uh, one that you have a good relationship with. Uh, a person who can exert some influence uh, on that particular individual. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense to me. It seems very rational. <laughs> and I think we we come across that even, um, we, Melissa nor I work uh, like with a club board, right? But we have to deal with the same thing. I mean, if you want somebody on your side uh, on a project or something that we're working on, it definitely helps to uh, to sort of grease the wheels a little bit with people you have a better relationship with. And then, and then get that influence going for sure. So we can switch, yeah, <laughs> we can switch gears a little bit off of the tricky topic of managing personalities um, and move into education. Uh, as you might know, CMAA has recently started doing governance summits uh, regionally, where we've encouraged managers to bring their 
club board president or other board members along with them to these, you know, one to two day education opportunities. Um, so do you think, and I guess more how, do you think that board education can be beneficial to creating a more effective governance structure within a club? I think it depends largely on the dynamics of the club. Uh, I had a very small board. I only had nine members on my board. Uh, that made it relatively simple. Uh, some clubs, uh, like Dunwoody Country Club in Georgia, created a great uh, director's training program that was for new directors. Uh, it was, uh, I think Hardy Croom was the general manager at the time, but he worked with an attorney uh, who was uh, a member of Dunwoody, and they put together a, a board of directors training program, and it was very beneficial. That's cool. They may still have a copy of it lying around. <laughs> <laughs> that might be interesting to see. Honestly, um, similarly along those lines, uh, what do you think is the best way to work on relationship building with your board, whether that's the manager building a relationship with individual board members or uh, I think board members building relationships among themselves? Um, I mean, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier with this idea of, you know, sort of the grassroots efforts <laughs> in getting people on your side. Um, yes. But, you know, to further that, I guess, um, how, do, how do you think are, uh, are the best ways to sort of work on those relationships? I found in my tenure that the best way to build relationships was off club property. <laughs> go to dinner, go to lunch, go someplace off the club property. I find that the board members are a little bit more realistic about life in general when they're not inside the walls of the club. Sure. If they're a golfer, take them out and play golf. If they're uh, like to go to a Braves game, we had season tickets to the Braves, take them to a Braves game. Um, it, all sorts of ways. That's like literal outside the box thinking. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I like, that. I like that. The box being the club. Right, exactly. I mean, I think once you remove somebody from sort of that space or comfort zone, it, you know, you change their physical location and you can change their mental perspective yes. too. Yes, that's sure. exactly right. I like and that. And you get to know what makes them tick better. Exactly. Definitely. I like that a lot. Um, so following that... Uh, how do you engage the board then for the long-term betterment of the club? So we, you know, we go from building these relationships for sort of this short-term project working, you know, um, method. But beyond that, how do we engage that board and continue those positive relationships long-term? Wow. Um, <clears throat> basically speaking. Clubs are a dollar and cents proposition. If a club doesn't make money, they're not going to be around very long. It's just so high you can raise dues to cover the shortcomings of the operation. Uh, I think board members' better understanding of what makes a club tick financially works to the benefit of the manager and of the club overall. Uh, I'll give you an example. Everybody talks about banquet business. 
there are good banquet business and there's bad banquet business. I'll give you an example. Bad banquet business is a ladies' luncheon with no alcohol. <laughs> Great banquet business is a stand-up cocktail reception. Sure. The profit line in a stand-up cocktail reception is terrific. It's not so good. As a matter of fact, it's a loss at the ladies' luncheon. You generally have more staff involved than you have customers. So getting the board to understand that type of the way the club works makes for a better operation. And it took me about uh, three boards for them to understand that proposition. Because they look at banquets, you know, they look at banquet business, oh, they had good banquet business. But if it's all bad banquet business, it's not very good. Right. Not for the health of the club. Sure. It's like relative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely. Wow. Well, we've, it's only been a few minutes, but I feel like we've covered a lot of ground <laughs> in what we've talked okay, I'll about. Give you, I'll give you another example. Sure. Ladies Bridge Clubs produce absolutely no revenue for the club. You know, a couple of them might have a drink or a, a Diet Coke or whatever. But the benefit to the club of having ladies bridge clubs is to convince the lady to bring her husband back for dinner. Yeah. And we did that by offering them, uh, I forget what it was, it was a, a, a English toffee. <laughs> And we, we put plates of English toffee on the bridge table. They loved it so much, we'd see 20% 20, 20 of them back for dinner that same night. It's funny how something so simple can be so effective. Yes. I like that. So our, our final question is, what do you wish you had known when you started your career in the club industry about governance? And what do you wish, what, what would you tell a manager starting out today who's just accepted their first position, their first GM position? Don't be too anxious. Settle back. Uh, take it as it comes. Uh, put your agenda on the back burner. That's great I'm, advice. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of an example. <laughs> no, I, I mean... I think that's great advice for a, a new GM, but I also think that that's just great advice for anyone starting a new job. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, I think it's so important to sort of, when you're stepping into that new role, to take a minute and assess really what you're walking into. Um, that way you have a better understanding of all of these different types of personalities that you may be encountering. Yeah. I think one thing, too, being agreeable works well, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily agree. Right. You don't want to be a pushover, but you do want to come, right. come from a place of yes. I like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you uh, sharing your experience and um, your thoughts with us on this most challenging of topics. Well, I appreciate the uh, opportunity. So now it's time to feature in the idea fair. And 
We're very excited today to have a member who has a great idea about governance uh, joining us. So 27 years ago, Robert Sorecci CCM entered the hospitality field with a genuine desire to make a meaningful difference in people's lives, both the people he serves and those he leads. Robert sees himself as a community builder within the club industry. Hired as general manager and chief operating officer of Medina Country Club in 2015, he is a strong collaborator and team builder and has worked to strengthen and empower the Medina brand. In addition to being a certified club manager, he holds a degree in hotel and restaurant management from Cal Poly Pomona and an MBA from Georgia State University. On the personal side, he's also a passionate street photographer who travels the globe documenting the human condition. So we're very excited to have um, Robert here with us today. Yes. I actually, we're rolling tape now, so um, we'll get started and, and just, um, you know, I, first of all, I just want to say it was, it was a light bulb moment for me. We were in the middle of recording um, the June edition and I was on LinkedIn working on a project about migrating our name, uh, our company page from one name to the other. And I came across your post about using white papers for your board of directors. And it was literally like, bingo. I was like, I have to, you know, I'm like, this is perfect. I was like, we have to get him on. We have to get him on to talk about this idea because it fits so well into what we're talking about. And the interview that we did with Mac Niven, um, we did an interview with um, Henry Waddington as well, who's a retired retired CMA member who um, was also on our board. And and everything, all of that fit in exactly when I read your post. So thank you so much oh, for joining us. And I love pleasure. your I love your hashtag, Club Changemaker. That was awesome. So well, It wasn't <laughs> mine. I have to give credit to uh, Gabe Aloisi. Uh-huh. He, uh, he started the hashtag, Gabe Aloisi. Did. Oh, sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we're, we're a fan. We've, li- we've listened to his podcast as well. So <laughs> I was going to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so... Tell, tell us about the idea. Tell us how it works and, and where the idea first came from. Sure. Well, ironically enough, it, uh, it started back in the late 90s. Uh, I heard Greg Patterson, who we all know, mm-hmm. uh, who was my professor at Cal Poly Pomona, and uh, he's a mentor of mine. And I heard him preach to club managers about the use of white papers and how he used them to communicate with his board. So I asked Greg, like I think many of us, uh, to send me some samples, which he did, about 20 of them. And I basically started reading him, and I got a good understanding of how to write one. The challenge was I actually didn't write one for many, many years. And it wasn't until some years later that I began really to appreciate uh, the significance of not only what he was saying, but the concept of white papers uh, and how it can be used. So honestly, at first, it was once it was very difficult uh, to write because uh, it's not something that I did well or a lot of. But with time, it got easier, and um, I think, coincidentally, my writing improved. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so is the reality, I mean, as far as how it became a reality, um, I think through necessity. Um, it became a reality after I experienced some frustrations earlier in my career uh, with, some, uh, with some board meetings. Uh, the type of frustrations were, for starters, uh, board members were making decisions, major decisions, I might add, absent of facts or history or full understanding of what the subject was at hand. Uh, two, the boards were quick to call in experts and consultants. And while I'm the guy in the room who they hired to, to kind of run the place, so I had to figure out how do I get some establishment credibility. And there was, uh, I was unsuccessful in guiding and influencing my board, which I completely uh, ignored for many years as a club manager. So. Um, how do I address these challenges? I started to write 
uh, white papers. So if you don't mind, I can share with you specifically how they have uh, helped me address these issues. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one uh, that I that really helped me was to provide a framework, and I think white papers do a great job of that. Um, many of us have been in board meetings discussing uh, significant issues of strategic, political, absent of facts or history, and a result, as a result, the conversation can go south on us or in circles, and eventually nothing uh, can get done. So. In my opinion, when board members don't agree and they seem to be resistant, what looks like what looks like resistance in the boardroom is often a lack of uh, framework. So the more difficult or complex the subject matter, the greater need for framework. Typically in Medina, we don't discuss uh, significant issues until I or a member of my team uh, writes a, a board, um, white paper on the subject and provides some framework. So only after we look at the uh, white paper, we read it, we become familiar with it, do we then share it. And each uh, board uh, white paper has four parts, an introduction. Uh, basically, we outline the challenge, what problem are we trying to solve, background uh, to include historical facts or issues that have occurred in the past, the idea, uh, what is it? Uh, what are the options, uh, what are the pros and cons, uh, and there's also a conclusion and sometimes, uh, if you are courageous enough, a recommendation. Um, so that was number one. Number two, um, I think this is a big one for club managers, Melissa, and that is um, they help establish credibility. Um, I'm sure that I'm not the only person that's been in a board meeting um, when a board decided to call in an expert uh, to solve a problem area. Um, and I think the board should view us as experts. And oftentimes uh, they jump the gun, call someone to come in, offer advice before they uh, talk to the club manager. Um, so board papers, I think uh, they provide a lot of, uh, of insight, input. Um, the board, board members should look to us to be the resident experts. But the truth of the matter is uh, they don't fully appreciate how intelligent or proficient club managers are. I think about it. I mean, <laughs> Why is it that they hold golf pros, tennis pros, superintendents, uh, or even chefs in high regards? I think it's because they, uh, they see them firsthand, how technically uh, strong they are, and through their tutelage, uh, members improve their skills. Um, club managers don't have the luxury. So uh, we have to uh, demonstrate how much we know, and to me, writing white papers, I think, is an effective way of uh, doing that. I think that's absolutely right, and you laid out a good point. I think um, the illustration of members or, or board members, rather, uh, seeing that like the golf pro or the tennis pro or the superintendent or the chef are experts in their field, it's something that's a little bit, I don't know, more familiar to someone to see um, an instructor or someone in that kind of role as as the expert but when you know the club manager it just I guess for someone who's not as familiar with the breadth of expertise that goes into being a successful club manager it almost maybe seems like oh well you're just running this business you're not you like what 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 specific expertise do you really have but then writing these white papers gives you the opportunity to say no this is my stuff. This is my jam, and I know what I'm talking about, and here's why. Correct. I like that well, a lot. You know, 
They, they, I mean, they don't, uh, unlike, you know, uh, the superintendent with advice on their grass or the chef on sauces, uh, they don't come to us to learn club management right. and leadership right. strategy. I mean, genuinely, I think as business people, they really believe they know this stuff, so there's mm -hmm. really no need to learn from the club managers. Exactly. So I think uh, um, you're right. I mean, uh, when we got hired, our search committees were so proud of us and paraded us in front of the membership, and we're so proud of how much we knew. But, you know, with time, presidents change, committees mm -hmm. change, and what started out as a superstar, you know, years later, now you're the guy or the gal that's just simply, like you said, running the club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, great. Um, I think to, to follow up what you've explained about you know, how the white papers came about and, and sort of the way that you approach them. Um, I guess our next question is really, how are those received by your board? I mean, it seems like it's a successful tactic for you to be using. So can you talk a little bit about how that reception has been? Of course. Um, so according to my club president, um, when we were uh, hosting the last governance summit, I can tell you that he basically said that the white papers are extremely effective and have been received uh, by the board. Honestly, I, I'm not surprised. I mean, having done this in several clubs with several boards, I have yet to have a president or a board reject the idea. Um, so, I mean, they also appreciate uh, my, my detailed written board reports. Uh, as you know, club management has become so much more complex. In my opinion, the answer to complexity is not simplicity. But transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, boards have to know what is happening at the club, uh, like all of us. I mean, I think they really fear what they don't know. And white papers and board reports provide that information where you're transparent and you arm them with information they should know. For sure. So how is that idea, how has this idea really changed the dynamic in the boardroom? I mean, one of the things that we've heard from a number of our guests is the most dangerous type of board member is that of an individual with a personal agenda um, kind of coming in. Mm -hmm. how, how does that kind of, how does that um, uh, foil those plans, I guess, if you will? Well, I mean, I think, you know, luckily for us, we have a, a pretty uh, good uh, nominating process or you hope that the nominating committee has done their homework due diligence in, uh, in uh, preventing someone with a personal agenda uh, to come through and end up on the board. But assuming you do, and it's not uncommon, I think board members genuinely want to make a difference, and sometimes wanting to make a difference can come with, a, with an agenda. But I'm not sure if the white papers will make uh, a massive difference in that area. In that area. I would say that for us, our conversations are a little more substantive. Mm -hmm. uh, board members are now armed with information that allows them to make meaningful contributions uh, to the discussion. Maybe if you came with an agenda and if you were under some uh, false assumptions or wrong facts, uh, possibly the white people can, can help uh, you by educating you and giving you context and information that you might have not otherwise known. So I think uh, I think that's maybe how uh, that helps. Yeah, I think I mean I would think so. I, I think any I think of it um, as like a student. You come to class, and if you're coming to class and you're not prepared or you haven't done the reading, you're going to come in with wrong facts, wrong wrong opinions, <laughs> and wrong ideas. 
But if you've taken the time to, to do your homework, then you're, you can contribute to the discussion uh, in a meaningful way. So. Well, Rick, you know, the one question I get a lot is, do your board members actually read this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, uh, I, don't, I, I can tell you my board reports are somewhere around eight to nine pages. Uh, and these uh, white papers can range between three to ten. You know, I, I think they do. I, I, but honestly, I, I think it's my job to arm them with information and give it to them for them to read and to, to study and make use of it. I can't make them do it, but uh, I think it's there for them to, to use. And I believe that the bulk of my, uh, my uh, board actually reads because they genuinely want to make a difference. They want to contribute. And all this does is arm them with information where they can be uh, productive in the, in the discussion. Definitely. It seems that they definitely see the value of these white papers. So that's good. Um, I guess, well, that can lead us into um, our next question. Um, we talked a lot, again, as Melissa mentioned, about how board members come in with their own agendas and can sometimes be sort of the most frustrating thing <laughs> about a club manager's job. Um, but what best practices, maybe in addition to creating these white papers, would you suggest to um, make interactions with board members more effective and productive? Sure. Um, probably the other thing that I introduced at Medina, which I'm sure a lot of club managers do, and that is a uh, formalizing board motions. We have a template uh, that we use for every board motion. Um, a senior manager working with their uh, respective chairs are required to fill out a board motion for considerations. Uh, we make sure that we have all the facts on the motion uh, prior to the vote. The motions are given to me. I vet them. I make sure they're accurate, um, well articulated. I then run them by the president who eventually will run it by the executive committee. And then, and only then, is it referred to the board uh, for a motion. So typically some clubs, I don't know how many, but it's not uncommon for board members to raise a motion uh, just out of the blue during a meeting. And then absent the facts or absent a framework, I mean, you just have this massive discussion. And when it's all said and done, some people don't even know exactly what the board motion motion was. <laughs> yeah. So we use this form, and uh, there's four things on the actual form. One is, it says, what is the background on this issue? This is where we give some historical information, uh, some context. Two, it says, why are you being asked to vote? Well, are there any bylaw ramifications or policy or uh, board policy issues or club rules? We spell those out. Um, uh, three, it says, what do you need uh, what do you need to know about this issue? And here's we'll give some insights into how this could potentially affect our membership, positively or negatively, any impact on the staff or the community. And finally, uh, what is the board motion? So we put it in writing so there's no confusion as to the exact wording of the motion. And this works pretty well for us. That's great. It looks like, I mean, really puts the, all the information up front and makes it well measured before it comes up. And, you know, I, I would expect that that's probably the, one of the biggest diverters of time during um, board meetings of just, you know, bringing those, bringing those up. Correct. 
One of the other topics that came up when we were talking about this is, is really the communication with your president. Um, what perspective do you think, you know, you, you talked about transparency and I wrote, wrote that down. I love that, you know, the answer to complexity, complexity is transparency. And that's, I think that's, that's like that rings so true really in, in so away. many, <laughs> so many areas, probably not just governance, but, um, you know, what, what suggestions would you make in terms of, of establishing that relationship with your president and, and communicating well? Well, I'm, I'm very blessed uh, in my three years of Medina. Um, I've had three incredible presidents. And um, we have a president that rotates every two years. And one of the reasons why I think uh, um, we have a good relationship is because, like all relationships, uh, I work at it. Um, I realize that my success uh, hinges on the relationship I have not only with my members and my team, but also with my board and my president. So my communication with my president is paramount. I conduct a new uh, president orientation where we sit down and I go through a list of maybe 20, 30 um, questions, everything from the mundane to how do you want to meet, when do you want to meet, what time, uh, how often, uh, tell me about you know, any allergies when we have lunch, to how do you want to communicate. How do you want me to give you bad news? Uh, one question I ask is, uh, if and when we disagree, how should we disagree? How do we communicate our disagreements? So um, we, we put this all in writing, so there's expectations on the front end of how he will value me as an effective club manager. And that's a big deal. I mean, different presidents value the effectiveness of club managers differently. I'm sure there's presidents out there who measure club managers' effectiveness by saying, I expect you to be in the dining room pulling chairs, pouring coffee, right? My president does not expect that of me. So his value, he evaluates my effectiveness differently. So he wants me to grow the membership, grow the balance sheet, have high uh, staff morale scores. Our membership satisfaction scores have to be high. So I have a clear understanding of the metrics that we use to measure my effectiveness right from the, from the get-go. And that's helpful. And ultimately, Melissa, I have to shield my president. At the end of the day, he's uh, the president that's volunteered to do this job. In general, bad news comes from me. Good news comes from the president. I was going to say, I think that's valuable, valuable advice. Yeah. Well, it seems like that transparency then goes both ways. So you want to be as transparent as possible with your board and your president, obviously, but you also want your president to be transparent with you in terms of setting those expectations for your effectiveness in your job. Um, but working on that relationship and, and having those open lines of communication, I think, is something that was brought up in multiple <laughs> conversations that we've had on this topic. It really goes back to that getting to know the people that you're working with and getting them comfortable with you and having good communication that can go a long but way. But, Kyle, you know, what, you know what's interesting, Kyle, is that I think so many of us uh, wrongfully assume that once you become a GM, you somehow think they're going to give you the keys to the store, and now you have all the authority to do whatever you want. Right. In reality, it doesn't work that way. No. Just because you have the title, it doesn't mean that you automatically have uh, the, the trust. Mm -hmm. I work really hard to earn the trust of my president. And the reason why I think I'm successful at Medina and I think um, my team members are successful is because 
I firmly believe my president gives me, provides me with a pretty wide safety net. And I'm absolutely proud of that because I do the same for my team. Mm -hmm. There are very, very few mistakes my team can make that I cannot get them out of. And the same with the president. Yeah. He allows us to be courageous, to think outside the box, to move the needle forward, knowing full well that he, I have his support and that of the board. And I've told him over and over that no amount of money or title can make up for what the trust that he has in me and my team. Absent of that trust, Melissa, nothing can happen. Yeah. So we are so blessed to have that support from him, that wide safety net that we know that uh, we're going to grow, we're going to be successful, and then if we make a mistake every now and then, that's okay. We'll learn from it and we move forward. So that's the kind of governance and culture that we have in Medina that I think single-handedly has been responsible for our incredible growth and success in the last few years. That's awesome. That's yeah. great. That's awesome. Well, I, um, I want to say thank you yeah. for <laughs> participating with us. Uh, this has been a great conversation, and I think we've had a lot of incredible takeaways. Um, so My pleasure. <laughs> from, from me and Melissa, uh, yep. thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you're more than welcome. Today, we're joined by our research department. Um, we have Emil Cardavi who came to CMA in 2015. He's our manager of research, which involves managing CMA's research strategy. Uh, this includes responding to research requests, designing surveys that benefit the membership and staff, producing annual survey reports, including the finance and operations and compensation and benefits survey reports, um, supporting the educational offerings such as BMI and sessions at the World Conference on Club Management. Um, we are also joined by Sarah Bell, who is the director for uh, virtual, virtual education, education and research. research. Inici no, oh, initiatives is not in there anymore. Yeah, that's right. She that's joined cool. CMA in 2009, first working with Premier Club Services and the International Wine Society. That's all you need yeah. to know. Sarah's been here forever. You've probably talked to her at some point if you've called and asked a question. <laughs> she knows all things. So we are very excited to have both of these two with us today, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about research, and we'll get started. Can you both tell us how research at CMA has evolved over the last, I don't know, five years, seven years, forever? <laughs> well, since I've only been around since 2015, I'll let Sarah start, and <laughs> sure. I'll jump in at 2015. Perfect. So research at CMA actually goes back over 30 years. We started doing research at the, at the association that I'm aware of in the 70s with annual reports. That's the latest, the earliest one I have. Um, since then, it has been, we've done research, it's usually an annual report or our faculty research grants. In, it was in 2015 under Jeff's leadership that we brought research in-house and started to own it and brought in Amilcar Davy. Since then, the department has grown to include our annual reports, our industry surveys, which are our niche topics, uh, as well as the faculty research grants. And then the, the thing that Amilcar owns and does every day is answer your questions, member questions, and that's been something that formerly lived in a different department that we've brought in under this umbrella. So since I started in 2015, I have uh, been lucky enough to have a great staff to work with. And in 2016, we had our inaugural research committee 
meeting. Uh, we have a committee weekend every year, and in 2016 was our first research committee, and that is where we uh, present different faculty ideas for research topics when they submit them, and the managers in the room approve or deny these research topics, and then once we approve the topics, we move forward to see if they can get uh, Club Foundation grants for the, uh, the research projects, and then I work with the faculty to release these projects to our membership. Well, the projects that are approved have to be beneficial to the membership. Uh, before I started, I think we we kind of approved projects on an ad hoc basis, and uh, there wasn't a lot of input from different managers and faculty whether we approve these projects. But now all of the projects have some sort of relevance to the membership. So. Uh, in addition to the research committee and the faculty projects, we have our annual reports. Uh, we speak about this at the research committee weekend, and also we just get feedback on how to get better at research every year. So our research is more of a it's a collective rather than uh, just Jeff stating that he wants to do something for the association, but. Uh, now everybody has a say. Everybody has input. We've had uh, we've had surveys that have gone out, pulse surveys to figure out where the future conference locations are. We've had pulse surveys that have gone out to see if the redesign of our club management magazine yeah. has been uh, you know to the membership's liking. So we just we're we're just getting feedback consistently. Cool. Can you um, explain what pulse surveys are? Yes. Uh, pulse surveys are, they're, they're short surveys designed to not be longer than 10 minutes that get feedback from the membership just to get the pulse of different topics. So as I mentioned, we did the conference location survey. We did the club management magazine satisfaction survey. And we've also done surveys on whether... Uh, the membership would be interested in an MBA, executive MBA program. Um, we've done it for BMI International to figure out the 2018 location. So it's just a, it's just a quick, it's like a quick uh, snapshot of what we want to do moving forward as an association and get the feedback from the membership on that. Cool. It sounds like our approach to research in the evolution that we've yeah. gone through is much more strategic now than it used to be. Like you mentioned with the having a research committee, mm -hmm. there's more input from the membership, um, those that are being affected by the research, those who want to ask questions. Um, so it's a lot more well-rounded, I think, than it previously was. Yeah, every survey that comes through this building comes through the research department. So whether that's an event survey, the pulse surveys, you'll see the competency study come out this fall uh, does come through the department, which gives us a little bit more control over how many surveys are out in the field. And our first year with our research committee, we spent a lot of time listening to what the needs were of the members. And the biggest push from that committee was that they were being over-surveyed. So I would say actually the hardest part of our job is making sure we're not over-surveying the membership and we're prioritizing what survey needs to go out when, the importance and who it goes to. So we're doing it in much more of a strategic pr approach to make sure that 
you're not being bombarded, at least from CMA National, on surveys for different projects within the building or for the benefit of you as a member. Sure. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I mean, the, 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 the beauty of it is the members feel like they have a say. They're empowered to reach out and give feedback, whereas you know, prior to 2015, that was not the case. And now they, they feel like they can reach out to either Sarah or I or even Jeff when he's, you know, he's, he's taking his uh, road trips and he definitely delivers any feedback that he gets to the research department. And we take that and it's real time updating how we do things and just making sure everybody's, I mean, not everybody's going to be satisfied <laughs> all the time, right. but where we can tweak changes, sure. we, we tweak. Yeah, we were, I think, both very happy when Comp and Benefits survey is out in the field currently, and within a day of the launch, we got an email from a member with, you know, love to the timing. It's only 30, it takes 30 to 60 minutes, but here's my additional feedback for next year. And that's what we like to hear is, we're always looking to improve the surveys sure. to make them better for you. Cool. Speaking of those surveys, uh, the Finance and Ops Report was just released. Talk about that a little bit. Tell us what's new, what's different, what kind of findings came up. I don't know. What, what's going on, Sarah Melkar? So <laughs> Finance and Ops is, is out, is coming out right now. Um, it's our 2018, so it's our second one uh, with bringing that project in-house. It's very similar to last year's. There's a little bit of trend data, so I believe... One of the two trend data that came out um, of it was that uh, words are hard. I know, right? <laughs> I believe it's a three percent membership increase across the board, and then rounds were stagnant, um, which I don't think we were surprised on either data point there. So as we build these reports, you're going to start seeing a lot more trend data. Um, otherwise, it's very status quo to last year uh, for those members that completed the report that participated, they will see they will see the full static copy, plus they get their individual club report, which shows their data alongside their club, their club based on operating revenue and their club based on their club type. And then those club resource center subscribers get some additional data analytics online through an online tool. It sounds like there's a lot of resources available if you choose to participate in yeah, the, our biggest goal with bringing that survey in-house was that as a participant, you get that member benefit of that full report. And it's about, I want to say, 100-ish like 100 pages. pages, 100 plus pages. And uh, bringing it in-house gave us the opportunity to have an, an interactive tool that you can use uh, if you're a club resource subscribe club resource center subscriber and you know uh, when we when we were working with the uh, our, our last company it caused so much for you to use that interactive tool but if you're a part of the club resource center that tool is complimentary and you can splice the data to certain details that it, it's it's a great benefit yeah, and the Club Resource Center is pretty economical at $100 yeah. a month. Yep. So it's a great tool for those clubs who are looking for a little bit more data analytics. And I guess to follow that, I mean, I'm sure most people understand the value of having that kind of data, but for somebody who might be new to it or doesn't really understand why data is good, what, mm -hmm. what kinds of benefits does having access to that data provide? So... <laughs> 
the having access to that data provides a lot of great benefits. Uh, our reports are done with a lot of ratios, and the ratios are good because it puts everyone on the same playing field, so you can look and see. Um, we actually had a question last week about cost of food, and I walked a Club Resource Center subscriber through where they could pull the five different peer groups mm -hmm. that made sense for them, and then they could see that the cost of food for that for all of those peer groups were within five percentage points. So that gives them a good target on where to look to have their cost of food if that's an important data set to them. Um, our contact industry insights is the company we work with. They've been working with associations for 35 plus years. They do a great job um, keeping data secure and confidential and they'll actually do a report release webinar for us. I believe it's August 8th. Um, and he'll go through the four steps when you're looking at data but the biggest thing is collecting the data, deciding what's important for you and understanding um, where you fall in regards to those ratios. Uh, you don't have to be exactly at the ratio, but you do want to be within that ballpark and then determining from there what you need to do to get yourself in line with the with your peer groups. And it, it also gives you a chance to, to have that conversation in the boardroom with your board members and just uh, either speaking with them on the same level or being able to educate them when they have questions because a lot of times there are like opinionated and emotionally fueled questions that come up in the boardroom and not having something with statistics and numbers next to it it could turn into a you know a different kind of argument a different kind of conversation with this finance and operations report you can get down to like the uh, the the real details of how your club is doing, where you're matched up against other like clubs, and you know each participant gets whether you're a club resource center subscriber or not, you get an individual club report, and that will show you where you stand with um, clubs that are within your revenue segment. So, a lot of times people think because you're in California that you have to you know, compare to other clubs in California. What it really boils down to is the revenue segment. And if if you have a similar revenue revenue segment, that uh, the, the 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 labor costs are going to be similar in that revenue segment. So if you have a five million dollar club in California versus a ten million dollar club in California, they're not going to be paying the same way the you know the the expense ratio is not going to be the same so you have to compare within the five million dollar revenue segment so sometimes when you're in the boardroom board members kind of lose that fact and they say well this club down the street they're doing this now you have the finance and operations report to bring everything back home and not let it get too out of hand in terms of just like talking data and numbers. Yeah, and I just want to reiterate, as a participant, you do you can see that operating revenue segment yeah. and club type, yeah. and then if you wanted, as a club resource center subscriber, you could actually pull your operating revenue segment plus your region, and you can see what the difference on those numbers are. That's cool. Yeah. That's gonna be a, a lot of resources available to folks, so I think it would behoove them to look into it further if it's not something that they're already doing. Um, our last question, uh, what can CMA members currently participate in? What's out there that they could be answering questions about? Funny you asked that. No. <laughs> Just last week, our compensation and benefits survey made its grand return. Uh, we took 
in, in working with Industry Insights, we took a year off in 2017 of the, from the Compensation and Benefits Survey because we had a meeting with them and they basically said that uh, compensation doesn't change as often as the finance and operations of an organization on an annual basis. So 2016 was our last Compensation and Benefits report. Now we have our Compensation and Benefits survey out into the field. That email was sent out uh, last Thursday, mm -hmm. and it will be open until July 16th for any clubs that want to participate. You know, just like the Finance and Operations report, the more participants, the better the data. So uh, right now, I think we have over 120 clubs that have started the Compensation and Benefits Survey, and it's something that people are really excited about just to see where their clubs fall when it comes to, you know, paying different positions. Uh, I think we added a whole nother layer for fitness and spa. Cool. So yeah. Yeah. Data. Yep. Yeah, with um, the Club Spa and Fitness Association, with them being managed by CMAA, we brought in a lot of positions in that area to help them and build out their report. So CMAA members who participate will get to see that data as well. And then CSFA members will also get to see that data. Um, and even with that data add, the report should take, the survey should take under an hour to complete. So we're very happy with that. Awesome. Well, that about wraps it up for Wait, us. wait, oh, wait, wait. Oh, I lied. Sarah mentioned that you have something else coming up this fall. So oh, what can you preview oh, for us? Because, wow. you, right. you know, you, you guys have a lot on your plate. So what, what's coming can up we, this fall? Can we do we that here? Do we have a lot or do the can members we, have a lot? The members oh, have a lot. <laughs> Wait a minute. Like, are we teasing it? Do you have to, do you have, to have you back? Can we, we, can can we announce that here? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, well, well no, we since I'm going on maternity leave, yeah, it's all preset. I feel confident that this is going to happen. Okay. Um, so this fall, the 2018 competency study will be back out in the field. And I say back because Jason Koningsfeld did this study in 2000, 2008. 2008. So it's 10, 10 years. years. So what, it's wait a minute, wait a minute. For, for those of us in the cheap seats, what's a competency study? So CMAA's whole educational process is built on our competencies. Um, there's currently 10. We're, mm -hmm. we're exploring going up to 12. So you'll see that in the survey. Um, our CCM exam is built on the 10 competencies. So for those of you who have sat, you are very familiar with the fact that you complete 10 sections and you must pass each section with at least a 50% and a 70% overall. Um, we're looking at each of those sections, which is what we build the curriculum on, what we teach the curriculum on, what we test you on. We're evaluating them to update them. So we'll take away some things that are dated. We'll take away anything that's not relevant to you anymore. Um, so you'll rate everything on a scale of importance as well as relevancy and frequency. Yeah. and frequency. Unfortunately for you as a member, this is a long survey, but it's very important. It takes, uh, our average is at about 90 minutes to complete it, but we have some great benefits for you. <laughs> One, it, it, the biggest benefit is it obviously updates our uh, professional development curriculum, so it will bring you some great education in the future. But also, we're, we're giving away two association activity credits uh, for those who complete the survey, and then you'll have the opportunity to be entered into a drawing for an education-only conference badge at in Nashville. So we'll do that drawing in December. Woohoo! Okay, well, can I take this survey? <laughs> 
that's, I mean, that's awesome. It's, the competency yeah. study will really yeah. lay a new foundation. Yeah. I, think, I mean, for it's, everything. it's the average time so far is 90 minutes, but you know, the benefit of it is in addition to the two association activity credits and also the, uh, the chance for conference, uh, well, not the benefit, but the good part is the survey will be open for a, a long period of time. So you can go in, complete a certain sections, finish your job, and go back and complete other sections. It'll be open from September to November. Okay, great. So typically a survey would be open, like the Compensation and Benefits Survey, just about like three weeks to a month. This one will be open for about three months, so you That's have good. time to really dig in and, yeah. you know, finish it. Right, finish <laughs> it. Cool. And, and it right. will help feed into our next strategic plan, so. And it'll also help us uh, write our book, our new uh, contemporary yeah. club management book that oh, yes. all the managers get at BMI 1. Uh, EMI, EMI Club, club Management. 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 Yeah. 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 And it's heavily used by our student members yes. as well. So, yes. I mean, refreshing that textbook is very important. Yes. Yeah. Well, and speaking of uh, faculty oh, yeah. grants, yep. the other survey we'll have out this fall, which will touch different members at different times, is yes. two of our faculty members are doing a competency study specifically for students. So it's well-timed, hence yeah. why that study was approved uh, it's well-timed with our goals as an association. So our competency study, as you can see, touches a lot of areas within the association. So it's a much needed. Um, so we hope that you'll spend the time to fill it out. Yeah, definitely. It brings more value to your association membership, for sure. So I think now yeah. we've reached so the end. Oh, wait. One, oh, uh. she, she, she jogged my memory. <laughs> Uh, we do have external surveys by the faculty yes. that we approved in the research committee, and they are to the benefit of the membership. Uh, you can definitely participate in them and help these academic uh, faculty um, produce uh, different white papers that we'll publish in our club. You know, like we'll publish it in our club resource center. And for the membership, and also have articles for Club Management Magazine, we have a, a person conduct fit organization project that will be going out in early August to the membership. It's uh, produced by Matthew Samuels. He is at Johnson & Wales University. Uh, we also have one of our long-tenured faculty at BMI, General Manager, COO, Ronald, Dr. Ronald Chickie, him and his team will be doing a, a research project on spa, fitness, and wellness in clubs. And in addition, what Sarah mentioned, the, uh, the competencies for students so that managers can get a good view of what they can contribute, what students should have as they go into the club managers work well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, it sounds like there's a lot coming down the pike yep. for yep. Full everybody too. Yep. Yeah. Full slate. Yeah. But, you know, as a member, we're here to answer your questions. So anytime yes. you, something comes up, feel free to send it our way. Um, between Emil Carr and myself and also Melissa, <laughs> we answer all sorts of questions from 
dogs on your golf course to 501c7 to data questions. So that's why we're here. Yep. So please take advantage of us. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, now. Now. No. No. Uh, now <laughs> we're done. Thank you both for joining us today. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps it up for us for this month. Thank you for listening. As always, we love hearing your feedback and any ideas you may have for future episodes. We're in the process of planning out the next couple. So if you have a great idea, shoot it our way, please, please, please. And if you have any reviews of our podcast, we'd love to hear them. Melissa? Absolutely. We look forward to talking to you in August. Enjoy the rest of your July and this hot summer weather. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Until then, goodbye. Bye. Bye.